0: What's the true meaning of Christmas? What is Christmas really all about? Decorating a bright evergreen, the giving of many gifts, mostly purchased on Amazon. (laughs) Jolly old St. Nicholas, thousands of Griswoldian lights, flying reindeer, frantic last minute shopping, warmth of bright fireplaces, stockings hung with care. Hearth and home, nasty fruitcake, poinsettias, wintry gusts, cards in the mail, home alone on TV, the sounds of carols in the air, a few days off from work and a few nights where all is calm and all is bright. For many people, that's what Christmas is. That's about it. Great expectations followed by feelings of emptiness and disappointment and the feeling that maybe this whole thing is just an annual mirage. Maybe that's kind of the way you're feeling this morning. The thing is, is that this version of Christmas, it never lives up to the hype, does it? It never lives up to the hype. Now, some of you, maybe we haven't even gotten to Christmas yet and you can already sense a looming letdown. We don't have to wonder what the true meaning of Christmas is because God in His Word tells us. We don't have to guess. God in His Word has spoken to us and revealed Himself to us and shown us that what happened 2,000 years ago in the city of Bethlehem is what Christmas is all about. He's told us what happened, He's told us how we ought to respond to what happened. Because he tells us what Christmas means. So if you have your Bibles, open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. What is the true meaning of Christmas? This is the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who, want, who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. This morning, I want to ask and answer two basic questions from this passage in Luke chapter two. The questions are this. Number one, what's Christmas really all about? Verses one to twelve. What's Christmas really all about? Verses 1 to 12. And then in verses 13 to 20. What's Christmas really got to do with you? What's Christmas really all about? And what's Christmas really got to do with you? Verses 13 to 20. Number one. What's Christmas really all about? In these opening verses. Verses 1 to 12. We're told what Christmas is all about. It's about the birth of. Of a baby, the birth of a child, the birth of a son, no baby Jesus, no Christmas. So Luke begins this account of the birth of Christ, you'll notice in verses one to five, by telling us about the historical and the political and the geographic context, the world in which this baby was born into. This history splitting event was born into a real world with a real context. You'll see there in verses one to five. It was a world dominated by Caesar Augustus. You know, Caesar, he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. This was the guy that transformed the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. So if you're a Star Wars fan, he was, he kind of pulled a Senator Palpatine move. Luke Not so subtly indicates that while King Caesar was reigning over an entire empire during a time of peace, the Pax Romana. Meanwhile, in a land far away from the tall town of Rome, the Christmas story, the birth of the King of Kings was just beginning. This young, unwed couple, Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem, to David's city, to register for this empire wide census. Now, just pause for a minute and think about the way Luke begins this whole story. We should marvel at the glorious providence of our king. Think about this. Our God moves the hearts of kings and rulers like a stream. He orchestrates through Caesar this entire census. And what happens is that in decreeing this census to be to be taken care of, what happens is that this child arrives in Bethlehem in fulfillment of what the prophets have written. Micah chapter five that we read earlier told us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so right at the beginning, we we are reminded by Luke that The Lord of Christmas is the Lord of history before whom all kings and presidents and prime ministers and dictators will bow. And so without any pomp or circumstance, the king of kings has arrived, the one who's going to bring in an eternal peace to his people. And so while they were at Bethlehem, we're told that Mary gives birth To her firstborn son, verse six and seven. Luke tells us that Mary gives birth to Jesus and she wraps him in swaddling cloths and she lays him in a manger, that is, a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, that word for in, I think sometimes we think of an inn, and we have this image of them knocking on the door to a bed and breakfast or something. And the guy says, hey, we're full. And he slams the door in their face. I think the innkeeper gets a, a raw deal on this. Um, if you just keep reading in Luke, he uses the same word in chapter 22, verse 11. And the word in that context is the same word and it's translated as guest room, guest room. So. I think it's easier to understand that in that time, you had a, houses had two levels. You had the lower level where you kept the animals and you had the upper level where you stayed. It was just one room. And so they arrive, they go to this guest room. The folks are in town for this census. There's no room for them upstairs. The only place for them to stay is in the lower level with where the animals were. That's why he's in a feeding trough. But I want you to think about this. Put yourself 2,000 years ago you're walking past this scene over to the right. Here's the feeding trough, the manger. There's this young Jewish couple with this newborn baby son. I want you to think about as you're walking past this scene, the one thought you would have never had was that this event that's happening right over here is an event that will literally split history into. B.C. before Christ, A.D. in the year of our Lord. What you see is this young, unwed Jewish couple having, holding a little baby son. And, and that, what you're seeing over there is actually the greatest miracle since the creation of the universe. The incarnation of the Son of God. And the reason you would not have thought that is because that, this intimate scene That Luke is describing for us the incarnation it requires an interpretation you you couldn't have just understood what was happening apart from God revealing what this means and that's what he does that's what he does who is this baby that's the question that we're gonna have the answer for in verses 8 to 12 look what he says and in that same region Who is Christ the Lord. So notice the angelic messenger from heaven interprets for us and for the shepherds the meaning of the incarnation, the meaning of this newborn child. And we can understand the meaning by just paying attention to the three titles for this child that are given right there in verse 11. Look at it again. There's three three titles. Savior Christ or Messiah and Lord. So let's just take a moment to ponder these together. Who is this baby? Well, first, this baby is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus' name, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall what? Save his people from their sins. Why did Christ come into the world? He came into the world to save sinners. Last week, you remember Zechariah in his beautiful song where he's praising and glorifying the Lord for giving him this son, John the Baptist. Remember how he begins that beautiful passage we saw last week. He says he praises and blesses God for raising up what a horn of salvation for his people, Israel. In uh, a few more verses later after this passage, remember Old Man Simeon, when this child is presented at the temple, the Old Man Simeon, led by the Holy Spirit, picks up the child in his arms. And what does he say? He says, Now, O Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen what? Your salvation. You see, Christmas is all about salvation coming into the world. It's about a savior being born. Christmas is about God sending the world a savior. His incarnation is the prerequisite for our salvation. Listen to what D.A. Carson said. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian. If God had perceived our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion our spiritual death. And so he sent us a savior. We were made in the image and likeness of God. We were made to bring our creator glory and honor. But we haven't. None of us have. Our first parents rebelled against God. And all of us have been born into this world sharing a nature that doesn't want God to be our king. We want to be our own kings and queens. We've orphaned ourselves because of our sin. We've separated ourselves because we failed to love the God who made us and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the wages of our sin is death. We do wrong, brothers and sisters, because we are wrong. We don't do the right thing because we're not right. That's what the Bible calls sin. And so God in his mercy has done what we can't do for ourselves. He has sent us a savior. So this is wonderful. I love these words. My favorite words in this whole chapter are right there. For unto you. Do you see that? Unto you is born this day a savior. That's weird. When's the last time you got a birth announcement in the mail that said our child was born for you? Never. Never. But this birth announcement says this child is born for you. For unto you is born this day a savior, this baby, this child, this deliverer is born for you, God is announcing, as it were, the birth, the incarnation of his eternal son. And he's saying to the world, a world that needs saving, my eternal son born in flesh is for you. So what's Christmas all about? It's about this child who was born a savior for you. Number two, what's Who is this child? Well, this baby is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And anytime, brothers and sisters, you see the word Christ, you know that this is just this is the language of Messiah. That's what the word means. It means the anointed one, the, the promised king who was to come from the line of David. All of the promises in the Old Testament pointing forward to the coming of a king descended from David Born in Bethlehem. We saw that in Micah 5. And I just want to point out that this is amazing. The one that the whole Old Testament is expecting to come is not only born in this kind of out-of-the-way, backwater town, but who is, his, who is his arrival announced to? His arrival, the long-awaited king. He's not born in Jerusalem. He's born in Bethlehem, and he's announced to who? The shepherds. This is bizarre. Just think about this. On one sense, it's bizarre, but another thing is it kind of makes sense. Think about David for a minute. The Messiah is going to come from David's line. He's born in the city of David. David was a shepherd. David was the king that no one would have picked. Remember when when Samuel went to, to his father's house, David's father's house, to find the next king? and he goes through all the brothers and he doesn't find a king. He says, is this all you got? Well, I got one more, one more son. Where is he? He's out tending the flocks. He's out shepherding in the fields. Go get him. David was an unlikely king. Saul looked like a king. David didn't. So no king, no king, in this bunch that you bring before me, are these all the sons? No, here's David. Okay, he's, he's the shepherd boy. And then centuries later at the birth of Messiah, the one who would rule and reign and shepherd his people forever, this birth is announced to little fellow shepherds. Now, let's just think about this. What does this tell you about the Messiah? He wasn't the Messiah that people expected. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He wasn't robed in fine royal clothes. He wasn't born in a golden crib. A stable was the Messiah's first throne room. His birth wasn't announced to Herod or Caesar Augustus. Nobody went and woke them up. The birth of the Messiah was announced to lowly shepherds. Now, normally in a normal year, this is the season for children Christmas plays, right? If you've never been to one of those, they're the best. I could watch Christmas plays all, all, all year long. They're great. I have had experience staffing Christmas plays and I, I've noticed a few things. Number one, uh, there are some coveted roles and there's some not so coveted roles. Mary has gotta be the most coveted role, right? She gets to hold the baby. I mean, that's, that's, that's choice, right? Um, the wise men who weren't even at the birth are also coveted because they've got gifts, right? Um, the angels are great because they've got wings. Um, but I've noticed that one of the roles that is often not chosen first are the shepherds. They don't say anything. They just stand there, right? They're just off, kind of off to the distance a little bit. They're not that impressive. I mean, we're not even given their names, We're not even given their names in in the text. They're just unnamed shepherds. They're a bunch of nobodies. And this is important for us because in Luke's gospel, brothers and sisters, in Luke's gospel, he emphasizes that more than any other gospel writer. That the Messiah came into the world to save nobodies. Christ came into the world to save the ones that society looks down upon. He came to save the ones who were on the outskirts, the one the world looks down on as unimportant, the one that the world looks down on and despises as nobodies. So Luke tells us over and over again, Christ came into the world to save the poor ones, to save Gentiles. To save lepers, to save Samaritans, to save tax collectors, to save prostitutes, to save shepherds. Our great and glorious God announced the arrival of the king of glory to a bunch of nobodies. But that, brothers and sisters, fits with who our God is, doesn't he? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? What we find in Luke chapter two is God flipping the world's expectations for what a king is and what a king does. Remember what Mary said just a few chapters earlier, just one chapter earlier. Remember, she said when she was told that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, she declared, has not God, has he says, she said, has God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate. Now, this is good news for us, because if we're honest with ourselves, we're really a bunch of nobodies. I've said this before, but there's a really, really good chance that your great-grandchildren won't know very much about you at all. I mean, what do you really know about your great-grandfather or your great-grandmother? Maybe you know something, but you're just a few generations away from being really utterly forgotten. Welcome to our church. You're a bunch of nobodies, right? But it's true. It's really true. Our names more than likely will be utterly forgotten from the pages of history. We're a bunch of nobodies. And yet, in his marvelous grace, God Almighty has brought to a bunch of nobodies, to the sound in our ears, news, good news of great joy, good news of a Savior. He's brought good news to us. So what's Christmas all about? It's about this one, this only son who was born as a baby, who is Savior and Messiah. And the last thing Luke tells us is he's Lord. Notice there for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is perhaps the most amazing thing of all that we're told in this chapter. Now, anytime you see a word used, you want to make sure that you're looking at it in context. Sometimes in the New Testament, the word that's rendered here as Lord. It just means a master, someone that's over you in authority. So sometimes you see this word used as, as someone's master. It's just, it's a, it, it can be used that way. But you have to pay attention to the context. When, when, when the angels say that this one who is born is Lord, is that what it's referring to? I don't think so. Look at the last time the word Lord has been used. Look up. Look back up at verse nine. An angel of the what? So you ought to wake up now. An angel of the Lord. That is an angel of Yahweh, a messenger of Yahweh appeared and the glory of the what? The glory of the Lord shone around them. So I take from verse nine that the very one who appeared in glory in the wilderness and at the burning bush, the very one who sends his messenger, the angel of the Lord, that what we find in this passage is that God himself is the one who's lying in that manger the incarnate Lord, Yahweh in the flesh, the Lord God of Israel. We sing in one of our Christmas hymns, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That's what's happening here. Verse 12 becomes all the more shocking. Look at verse 12. And you will find this sign for you, You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Sometimes we get sentimental when we think about the manger, this feeding trough where the baby Jesus was born. It's easy to get sentimental. But just think about that for a minute. When God took on flesh and dwelt among us, he was placed In a feeding trough. Luke wants to highlight that for us. Did you notice that? Three times in our passage. We're told that he's in a manger. I think Luke wants to shock us. God came and he's placed not on a throne or in a castle or a palace, but in a feeding trough. The shocking nature of our Lord's birth, brothers and sisters, prepares us for the shocking nature of our Lord's death. I think that's what Luke's doing. I know that's what Luke's doing. The only thing more incredible than the Lord of glory as a baby in a feeding trough is the Lord of glory dying next to criminals on a Roman cross. In our rebellion, we've shown we don't want God as our king. And yet what we find here is that instead of wiping us out as rebels, God in his son becomes like us, takes our flesh. And he goes to the cross to die in place of rebels like you and like me. He took the penalty of our sins, the sins of anyone who would ever trust in Him, turn from their sins and trust in Him. After Jesus died, He wasn't placed in a manger, was He? Listen to the way Luke describes it, though. I wonder if you can hear, in the way Luke describes it, the connection back to Luke chapter 2. Luke 23, this is what we're told. Then Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus down from the cross and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and he laid him in a tomb, a tomb cut in stone where no one else had yet been laid. Three days later, this one who was born in Bethlehem, who died on a Roman cross, rose again triumphant over death and hell and Satan. And you remember, angels rejoiced at the birth of our king. And one other time in Luke's gospel, we find angels rejoicing. You know what it is? Luke chapter 15 This is not the only time angels are rejoicing at the birth of the savior. Jesus says in Luke 15, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So when the savior of sinners is born, the one who's gonna go and die for his people angels rejoice and when one sinner repents and trusts in this savior the angels of heaven rejoice so brothers and sisters friends what is Christmas really all about it's about the birth of this baby the one who was born as savior and Christ and Lord Christmas is about God gladly receiving rebels who lay down their arms of rebellion and trust in the son that he has provided. That's what Christmas is all about. But what does Christmas really have to do with you? Let's close by reflecting on a few applications from this passage. Look at verses 13 to 20. We're told how we are to respond. We're not only to simply trust in this savior, but we're to respond in a few ways. Look at verses 13 to 20. But before we look at there, just look back at verse 10. Fear not for I behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So when, when this birth is announced, it's announced as great joy, as, as mega joy for all people. So when you hear something, I mean, imagine what's the best news you've ever heard? Apart from the gospel, what's the best news you've heard? When someone tells you amazingly great news, you don't simply hear it and walk away unchanged. You respond. You respond. And that's what Luke does in these closing verses in verses 13 to 20. Luke gives us four responses. Let's look at the first one. The first response is glorify. The first response is glorify. You see this at the beginning and at the end. Christmas is a call to glorify God. At the birth of the savior, the angels glorify God. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased peace among those whom God has shown favor so at the birth of the Savior angels rejoice and glorify God look at verse 20 at the birth of the Savior the shepherds glorify God verse 20 and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them." So the angels and the shepherds, the highest and the lowest, respond to the birth of the Savior by glorifying God. So that's a clue for us. When we celebrate the coming of our Lord into the world, the main lesson and application for us is to glorify our God. Are you celebrating Christmas in such a way that makes much of God? Do your children, do your grandchildren, do your friends, do your family know by your celebration of Christmas that your aim is to glorify God? Number two, the second response is wonder, wonder. Christmas is a call to wonder. Look at verses 15 to 18. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it, notice, wondered at what the shepherds told them. All who heard about the arrival of the king, they wondered. They were astonished. They were marveling at what they had heard. The infinite God became An infant. And so we can't hear something that's staggering and not spend time wondering at what God has done. The late J.I. Packer in his wonderful book, Knowing God, he has a great chapter on God incarnate. This is my favorite sentence in that chapter. The Christmas message is that there's hope for a ruined humanity. Hope for pardon, hope for peace with God, hope of glory. And this is why. Because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, he might hang on a cross. And then Packer writes this. This is the most wonderful message that the world has has ever heard or will hear. Brothers and sisters, have you taken time in this busy schedule to just pause and wonder at the glory of the incarnation? We're called to glorify. We're called to wonder. We're called to treasure. Number three, we're called to treasure Christmas is a call to treasure verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. These truths about the Savior are to be treasured. Now, if you find it hard to treasure these things, just think about this morning. We woke up and gathered here without threat of persecution or Any of that. And we think about there are millions and millions and millions of people in this world right now that have never heard Luke chapter 2. No one's ever told them. They don't have a Bible to read. Millions and millions of people have never heard these wonderful truths. Do you? Treasure these truths. Now, when you ask that question, am I treasuring the truths of Christmas? We're told in this verse how you know whether you are. Look at the verse again. And that leads us to number four. Number four is ponder. How, how do you know that you're treasuring these truths? Are you pondering them? Notice the verse again. Mary was treasuring up all these truths. How? How? By pondering them in her heart. You see that? That's a participle, the ing word that helps get the main verb done. So if you want to know, how do I go about treasuring these truths? Well, you ponder them. Are you pondering these truths? Are you giving careful and prayerful thought and attention to Luke chapter 2 during this time of year? John Piper wrote one time, beholding glory begs for lingering. You've got to make time, brothers and sisters, to ponder. You can't microwave pondering. You've got to get a crock pot. Okay, we're, we're thinking about lunch. Forget that. Forget that illustration. You've got, to, you've got to take time. You have to make time. You can't ponder and do five other things at the same time. You've got to quiet yourself and think and pray and ponder and meditate. The preciousness of these things caused Mary to linger over them. How much pondering are you doing right now? Have you slowed down? Have you paused Have you stopped to think about what we confess as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? That the infinite God became an infant. One of my favorite parts of the service is actually the end of the service. Now you're probably thinking, amen, amen. Actually, it's the beginning of the end. We we take a moment to be quiet. You ever thought about that? We have a moment where we... Try to be quiet and ponder the word of the living God. We have a brief moment to be still, to linger, to ponder. So at the end of our service, if you haven't been pondering, I'm gonna, we're going to give you a softball. Just, just take a moment at the end of our service after the benediction to just ponder what we've heard from God's word. When you think about what happened at that first Christmas as we close, there is so much to ponder, isn't there? The one who was delivered in a wooden cradle is the one who delivered others on a wooden cross. Delivered and delivering. Jesus held by the wood. Witnesses on either side. Mary stood waiting, quietly gazing, with great feeling on her son. The sky dark above, as at the beginning, so at the end. Jesus held by the wood, delivered and delivering. Jesus held by the wood. The scene of Christmas and of Calvary, of the cradle and the cross. One of my heroes, Augustine of Hippo, wrote these words in a Christmas sermon back in the three fifties. The word of the father by whom all time was created was made flesh and born in time for us. The maker of man became man so that he, the ruler of the stars, might be nourished at his mother's breast, that he, the bread, might hunger. That he, the fountain, might thirst. That he, the light, might sleep. That he, the way, might be weary by the journey. That he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses. That he, the judge, might be brought to a trial. That he, the healer, might be wounded. That he, the life, might die. Oh, brothers and sisters, there is so much to ponder in this passage. Christmas is all about him. Good news of great joy about him. That's for all people, including you, including you. So the only response for us remains to say, let earth, let the whole earth. Receive her king. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we thank you that for many of us, these words are very, very familiar. But we pray that familiarity wouldn't breed contempt, that we even today would with fresh eyes and fresh ears contemplate and marvel at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, while he was rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich in him. O Father, awaken in us faith and love and hope. And we look forward to the day When the one who came into the world to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself appears a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. We ask this in Jesus, our great Savior's sake. Amen.